Good afternoon, folks. That time of the day again, time for the elephant in the room here on WJAS 1320 AM and 99.1 FM Talk. As usual, I'm joined in studio here by my trusty executive director, John Schneider. And John, I can't tell you how much uh, I appreciate all the hard work that you put in both for the committee of uh, Republican Committee of Allegheny County, but also on this show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sam. I appreciate the kind words. And folks, also, you've heard me refer to him, man of a thousand names, whether he's dazzling, dandy, or both. We have dazzling, dandy Daryl Grandy here, uh, host of the D&G Morning Show. Uh, and he's here as our producer to uh, add some color to this show and make sure that the folks that we're talking to get through to you folks. And we can't tell you how much we appreciate Daryl being here. Thank you, Sam. Good, good afternoon, everybody. Huh, how about that? Now, folks, sort of low-key entry, right, for a Saturday show here. You know, uh, one of the ones on the last weekend of January, the day before Championship Sunday with the NFL. Man, wish the Steelers were in this thing, you know. Uh, hopefully next year, right? It's always next year if they can just get this quarterback situation and this offensive coordinator thing sorted out. But, hey, that's not why we're here today. You can hear that on all these other stations. We're here to talk about what's really important, and that's our nation, our commonwealth, and our county. And I can't tell you how pleased I am today to be joined in studio by Rob McCurry. Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sam. It's great to be back. Well, it's great to have you here. Now, you know, I just introduced you as Rob McCurry, but for folks should know, I mean, you're the state representative for the 28th legislative district here, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, you know, which encompasses much of the North Hills. And you've been, what term, how long have you been there? Second term, uh, proud state legislator uh, of uh, beautiful District 28, which is Marshall Township, Bradford Woods, Pine, Richland, uh, half of Hampton, and West Deer, my hometown. Oh, wow. And that, now that's, you went to school? Deer Lakes, graduate, 2000. <coughs> yep. So now I get to represent West Deer and, and my uh, my hometown. My parents are still in the district, uh-huh. which is a lot of fun. Now, that was before you received an appointment. You attended the Military Academy at West Point. Did I you know? did. I did. Uh, yes. Yeah, so I, w- I joined uh, my West Point class uh, in 2000, went through R-Day and, and uh, military basic training uh, pre-9-11. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then my sophomore year, uh, 9-11 happened, and it changed all of our trajectories. And we all knew that we were headed to war uh, shortly thereafter. So it became very serious very quick. Well, later on in the show, I want to get your take there on what you think is going on like at places like West Point and Annapolis with this uh, Biden administration, DEI, and all the other things that are taking place that I believe are corrupting our military. But hey, before we get into all of that, we got a lot to talk about because in addition to that, you're also a candidate for Congress. That's right. In Pennsylvania's 17th Congressional District, which is my district. That's right. You know, so I mean, hey. Uh, uh, for full disclosure, folks, I just signed Rob's petition to get him on the ballot here in the 17th Congressional District. Please, you can go to Allegheny.gop, Allegheny.gop, and you can find information on where we're having these petition signing events to be able to go out there and assign his petition to get him on the ballot so that we can get representation, Republican representation, conservative representation, common sense representation here in Washington. But before... We talk about all that, Rob. Can you give us an update on what the heck is going on here in the state? Sure, Sam. Yeah, and thanks again for the introduction, the kind introduction, and for having me. There is lots to talk about. There's lots going on. Your listeners know that. Uh, But in the state legislature, there's not a lot going on. We're actually not meeting 
um, in the state legislature as a legislative body until March 18th. And in fact, we are uh, one of the largest full-time legislators, uh, legislatures in the country, mm. one of the most expensive uh, <coughs> for the taxpayers. We've got a beautiful Capitol building that was built in 1904, dedicated by Theodore Roosevelt, and that thing is sitting empty right now. Uh, there's nothing going on until March 18th. The reason is uh, that uh, the, there's a gridlock in terms of the majority in the state house. We're a 101-101 chamber, and the Democrats have the uh, uh, the the you know, majority and the gavel and the speakership, and so they've decided no business at all uh, for the people until they can hold a special election and uh, for them uh, regain the the voting majority so that they can take the votes they want. I just think it's the wrong approach. Uh, I've spoken out against it. I wrote an op-ed uh, that was covered in the uh, Tribune Review last week. Uh, we need to get to work. There is far too much business uh, that we need to take on as a legislature and, and take votes on, whether it's um, uh, school choice, whether it's uh, funding measures uh, across the state, um, and uh, the list goes on, health issues, uh, tax issues, and we're sitting idle uh, because of a political issue. It's wrong. Well, I appreciate You shared with our listeners here the real reason. It's all about politics. The Democrats with a one-seat majority have temporarily lost that majority as one of their members was elected as a district judge, you know, out east. And so now with a tied chamber, mm-hmm. 101-101, they don't want to take the chance of coming back into session and perhaps losing, you know, their majority. So they're going to take and hold out. Now, Rob, if you could, I mean, this goes back to once they were elected. Once the Democrats were elected in November of 2022, mm-hmm. You know, they immediately had a number of empty seats. Summer Lee was elected to Congress. You know, Representative Austin Davis was elected as lieutenant governor. <clears throat> um, and there was a third. Uh, oh, it was um, uh, Anthony DeLuca had passed, passed away, away. and he had been elected in Penn Hills. So there were three special elections in last year, in the winter of last year. So what happens is they get elected in November, and there's no sessions. It never came into session. You know, they waited. They met for just a brief few days. What was it, one day in, in January before they declared recess and they'll come back right. after the special elections were held? It's been very topsy-turvy and very unproductive. It's been uh, one of the most unproductive legislative sessions uh, in the history of the legislature, and it's certainly in recent memory. I think there was only 77 uh, total bills passed out of the chamber uh, compared to hundreds and hundreds uh, in prior sessions. Um, just to keep the lights on and keep the budget process moving, uh, folks know that we've got to pass many, many bills. Um, and so uh, the fact that we've been out of session uh, for such a, a lengthy amount of time, um, it stops up the business. And Pennsylvania has already been known and has earned a reputation as being uh, slow to get business done. We know that. Um, and we've seen uh, the impact of that lack of productivity on companies who want to do business here. And they end up going elsewhere because we can't get our business done. Uh, this is a, uh, during a time when we have Governor Shapiro, whose motto is get stuff done. Uh, but it's very hard for him to do what he would like to do if the legislature can't get together and meet. Uh, so I, for one, want to get back to business um, and have the debates in session uh, so that we can let folks at home know uh, what uh, what we'd like to do as a Republican caucus. Uh, and so our intent 
uh, this year is to uh, continue to uh, show up, represent the people that we serve, uh, both in district and in the Capitol, um, and then hopefully in November, uh, regain the majority um, in the legislature, in the state house, uh, so that we can um, pursue the agenda that uh, that we'd all like to see. Right. Now, you just mentioned here a couple minutes ago that the House will not be back in session until March 18th. But I, I want folks to know, can you walk folks through and let them know, you know, from November, from this past election, November of 23, how many days was the House actually in session? Because most of December was off as well. Was most it not? of December was off. Very few session days, maybe six session days before the end of the year. Um, and then zero until uh, March 18th. So basically, folks, a quarter of the year is being spent off break in just this last break here while they're drawing six-figure salaries. You know, and now I can see. I mean, I saw something the other day. Uh, county Executive Sarah Inamorado, along with uh, Congresswoman Summer Lee and some of the legislators, were down there uh, campaigning, mm-hmm. you know, outside the uh, city-county building talking about they were protecting women's rights, you know, and uh, with all due respect, uh, no one's looking to change the law in Pennsylvania. So they can find the time to campaign, but they can't find the time to actually show up in session to get the people's work done. It's very so disappointing. It is. You know, so we're certainly going to have to change that, you know, and I appreciate uh, you coming in and updating us on that, but – we have to win back the majority. That's right. That's the goal. You know, and, and, and you're moving on. It looks like you're going to be moving on to Congress. Hopefully, we're going to get you elected here this November as well. So do you have a? Uh, do we have somebody looking to uh, backfill you and to fill your seat in the 28th District? Yeah, so we, uh, we've got a number of great candidates uh, for open seats and for competitive seats across the State House and Senate this year. Um, Jeremy Schaefer announced mm-hmm. recently that, that he's going to be he, – he's thrown his hat in. Um, and I haven't heard of anybody else uh, in the 28th. He's a great candidate. We know Jeremy well. Um, and so I'm wishing him the best in, in, uh, in following uh, in my footsteps in the 28th. Right. And, uh, but as you mentioned, Sam, we announced uh, in August of last year uh, that I'm running for U.S. Congress in District 17. And that's a, a swing seat. It's a, a top 10 seat nationally. Um, and that's because it was drawn very close. Um, and last uh, year's election uh, that actually Jeremy ran in uh, was also pretty close in a tough election year. And this will be a presidential election year, so turnout's going to be high. Uh, and we've been uh, gathering resources, sharing our story, uh, telling folks why uh, we think we would uh, represent this area really, really well. Um, and a lot of it has to do with the state of the country. Um, and you know, folks across the country know, and certainly in Western Pennsylvania, that this moment of partisan divide um, is is tearing us apart. We need people who are willing to step up uh, for our conservative values, find common ground, and move us forward as a region. Uh, and that's what I'm committed to do, and that's how I'm running this campaign. We've gotten a great response, uh, and we've been raising a substantial amount of money, uh, which we need to get our message out. And we've gotten uh, tons of volunteers gathered to us as well. And so we're excited as we're uh, going through the petition mm-hmm. process now. Uh, we need 1,000 signatures to get on the ballot, um, and we're about halfway there, uh, which, is, which is great, and in just a couple days. Mm-hmm. So we're moving fast. Uh, we're gathering supporters to us, uh, and we're getting good uh, support from, from D.C. as well, uh, from uh, senior Republicans in D.C., Speaker Johnson, 
um, and others uh, have have indicated that our race is a close to watch race and something that that they're supporting. I'm on the speaker's slate, which is always helpful, uh, and that helps uh, gather other congressional support our way too. So we're just going to continue to walk this path um, and talk to folks uh, in town hall settings. We were with the college Republicans at Pitt last night, mm-hmm. um, and they were very, very enthusiastic. Uh, we're going to talk to them about our conservative vision for the country. And, uh, you know, a lot of times uh, people think conservative just means old-fashioned and traditional. But it's actually a governing philosophy about the role of government in our lives. And we think uh, that uh, government is best suited uh, at a uh, arm's length from individuals, that it should let uh, individuals choose their own path in life and live uh, their lives and, and hold their jobs and uh, raise their families as they see fit. And that's the beauty of uh, the American dream is we get to do that. Now, the Democrats, and the, especially the progressives, have a different view um, espoused by the current congressman, Chris Deluzio. And he's uh, got a much more progressive view of the world. He wants government to be involved uh, in every facet of our lives. And he wants budgets to be very, very large. And he wants uh, government uh, to be powerful uh, in the federal uh, sense. And I just think that's the wrong approach. And it leads to a place where we have more division uh, than is necessary. And so I'm excited to share that conservative message across the district um, and win people to our side and ask them to stand up and, and be heard. Well, a couple things. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more <clears throat> that government's role, you know, limited government is best. Government's role should be minimized. Look, there are things, folks, that only government can do, you know, and that, you know, their responsibilities should be securing our rights. So the courts, law enforcement, the military, you know, infrastructure things of that nature, okay? But Democrats, or I shouldn't say Democrats, I should say progressives, have tried to take and infringe on every aspect, you know, of our lives and telling us how to live. And, you know, Representative Deluzio is a perfect example there. And you talked about, you know, they want to spend big. Well, the problem is we're running like $2 trillion deficits in Washington. That's money we don't have. And folks, they're collecting trillions of dollars every year from you, our taxpayers. But the problem is over a trillion dollars a year right now of that money is going to pay interest on the debt that we have today as we continue to pile it up and to incur additional debt. So we absolutely need to take and change. And listen, let's let's not kid anybody, Rob. I mean, this has been a Republican and Democrat problem. Mm-hmm. You know, and I know being in government that, uh, you know, every dollar – the government puts out there has fingers clenched to it. You're wanting to hold on to that door when you look to reduce or cut spending. But you know, again, the private sector does so many more things better or more efficiently than government. I use a perfect example. Let's talk about healthcare. You know, the Democrats have come out and they're attacking uh, Medicare Advantage now. Okay, and you know they want this Medicare type for all. <clears throat> but the problem is, you lose choice. You know, and and what someone, what the market in Oklahoma requires and the market in Pennsylvania requires are two different things. You know, and here with competition, you have the market reacting to what their customers, meaning the folks they're insuring, are looking for. With government, you wouldn't have that choice. You get a one-size-fits-all. I mean, folks, that's just a simple, brief example of why, you know, central planning and top-down government is bad. So I can't tell you how much I appreciate you 
carrying this banner and wanting to take that message to Washington, Rob. That's exactly right, Sam. And you and I both know that the, the, the government does certain things well, uh, but many things less than optimal. Mm-hmm. And being Like the, securing our borders? Secure, well, yes. <laughs> and you and I were both in the military, and we've seen how the, the government can form a military and recruit soldiers and Marines and sailors and airmen and then perform that mission. Um, that's an essential mission. But even when you're in the military, and, and, and I know this from being in the Army for uh, 10 years, that there are many functions that you, you watch the government organize and operate, and it's slow-moving, and it's not efficient, and, uh, and translating that into other functions, like you mentioned, healthcare, mm-hmm. or um, you know, getting involved in, in many industries uh, that they shouldn't be that there are less than optimal results that occur. We've seen that with uh, what's happened to U.S. Steel. Let's talk about that for sure. a little bit, uh, Sam, if, if we, we could. And uh, what's happened with U.S. Steel is unfortunate. Um, U.S. Steel, uh, a Pittsburgh-headquartered company for, for so long, um, you know, many of our family members and grandparents worked in the mills, um, my own included, over the years. Um, and it's sad to see a Japanese company uh, purchase what, what is a proud United States and, and Pittsburgh company. Um, however, why we got here is because there's been years and years of bad policy that have literally chased U.S. Steel out of town over time. And a lot of it was, you know, Pennsylvania's governor uh, basically said uh, that the regional greenhouse gas initiative was a big priority of his, that he wanted any carbon emitters to be penalized and penalized mm-hmm. in a big way. Um, there were more regulations like that, too. Uh, that was the one that got him a lot of headlines. But there were uh, Department of uh, Environmental Protection guidelines and permitting processes that were slow to move, uh, as they are in Pennsylvania. These kind of things just showed industry that Pennsylvania was closed for business, and certainly in energy and, and, and manufacturing. And that's unfortunate. And now we have a situation where everybody's calling for the deal to be canceled, when U.S. Steel is simply following free market principles um, and uh, selling itself to the highest bidder. Um, I wish we would point to the real problem, which is these environmental overreach policies uh, that we've had enacted in Pennsylvania and in the country for too long that have really put a, put a, a thumb on the scale against U.S. Steel. Yeah, let me add some context to this, folks. <clears throat> um, what happened was the United Steelworkers Union went out and went to a company called Cleveland Cliffs, headquartered in Cleveland, Ohio, and came out this past summer with an unsolicited bid. And then U.S. Steel wasn't looking for it, but came out with an unsolicited bid of $7.3 billion to acquire U.S. Steel. And now the Steelworkers Union, they want, you know, they're, they're in favor of this because this was, they put this together with Cleveland Cliffs. And while they claim that it would be good for their workers, it's not good for the 1,000 headquarters workers here who aren't part of their union, who would be out of a job if that were to go through because the you know, Cleveland Cliffs, headquartered in Cleveland, has no reason to keep those folks on. So our headquarters here would be gutted. <clears throat> so U.S. Steel, in reaction to that, you know, and they have the, the fiduciary responsibility to the shareholders, they entertained bids you know, for the, the company there in whole or parts or whatever they looked at. And what came out of that was a company, a global manufacturer, Nippon Steel, you know, a Japanese company, one of our strongest allies, <clears throat> came to the table and said, hey, we're willing to make a $14.9 billion investment. 
14.1 in cash. Again, folks, that's $14.1 billion of cash and assuming $800 million in liabilities. And they guaranteed that the U.S. Steel name and brand was going to stay here. They guaranteed that our headquarters was going to stay in Pittsburgh. You know, and they're guaranteeing that they're going to take and abide by all the collective bargaining agreements and, and contracts they have with all of the existing unions. And, and think about what an injection of cash in that amount can do to U.S. Steel. Because just a couple of years ago, Rob, I don't know if you remember this. I don't know if it was late 2018 uh, or early 2019, but U.S. Steel announced that they were going to take and do a $1.3 billion project down in the Mon Valley. It was an investment to modernize their facilities. It would help clean the air, all these different things, reduce emissions. This whole bit was very positive. And a lot of politicians lined up to get their picture taken and all celebrate and pat each other on the back that day. And then what happened is their permits sat at the Allegheny County Health Department for over 18 months. Over 18 months, between 18 months and two years, they sat there. And that allowed things to occur, market conditions to deteriorate, and U.S. Steel ended up last year pulling the plug on that investment. And now, all of these same politicians that are out here railing against the acquisition by Nippon Steel, you know, uh, even though it runs counter to the interests of the shareholders and the workers, where were they when the Allegheny County Health Department was continuously fining U.S. Steel for what they claimed were violations? And where were they where all these environmental groups were attacking U.S. Steel? And again, folks, for the folks that don't know, U.S. Steel is the region's largest manufacturing employer. You know, so and while I wish that, you know, this remained an American company, I think looking at the current situation and where they were, this is the best thing that could happen for the workers because what folks don't understand, this, and I tried to explain this to our county council colleagues the other night, <clears throat> there are other bids out there for U.S. Steel. So it wasn't a Cleveland Cliffs or a Nippon Steel, you know, and there's no guarantee that if this, this deal with Nippon fell apart, that U.S. Steel would remain here. We could end up losing them, losing those jobs here in this region, period. So, you know, it's, it, it's I, I don't know, it's frustrating, Rob. We'll talk about some other things, but I, I just can't get past politicians and they can't do the right thing. I mean, let's stand up for our region's largest employers, the people that provide good-paying, family-sustaining jobs, you know, to our citizens. I mean, obviously, we all want clean air and clean water. And I can tell you that the air here in Allegheny County despite what you might hear from some crazy groups, is 80% cleaner, 80% better than it was just 20 years ago. Yeah, and let's take the opportunity to say the best thing that we can do as policymakers is turn that sign from close to business in Pennsylvania to open for business. We need to do that. And when we do that with the you know, environmental you know, focus that is already here, that companies will be able to innovate and create cleaner air and cleaner water as they do business here, as they create more family-sustaining jobs. And we've seen that over time, whether it's the uh, energy industry and, uh, and the clean natural gas production that we have across Western Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. or with, uh, with the U.S. steel industry, where they, they created this plan for what would have been the cleanest steel production facility in the world at the time, that because of those, those slow permits, they decided to go to Arkansas and build the cleanest 
steel facility in the world. Well, but that could have been and should have been right here well, in town. And I, and I think it still can be. And because the gentleman who's an independent researcher, industry analyst, 44 years he's been monitoring the metals industry, he believes that with this acquisition, that upon will then revive that investment here in the Mon Valley. And, you know, when we talk about what are they bringing, all right, the pond, which runs many of the largest blast furnaces in the world, intends to bring fresh investment and innovation to U.S. Steel's blast furnace facilities, including technology to increase efficiency and reduce CO2 emissions. This is a statement that was made, you know, in an opinion article in the Wall Street Journal just the other day, okay? So, I mean, these folks, they're developing. They say, hey, that they will maintain U.S. Steel's manufacturing facilities and ensure its products are mined, melted, and made in America. So, you know, again, you know, while we might have predisposed notions of what we would like and things of that nature, based upon current circumstances, you know, I think this is the, the best deal that can be made at this point in time. Again, it's more than it's double, you know, what the offer from Cleveland Cliffs was. This is all in cash. And again, and what kind of a message would we be sending to folks if we said, hey, you're global, one of the world's largest global manufacturers, but you, we lost 50,000 jobs the last five years, but hey, we don't want you to come here. You're not welcome here, right? And that doesn't, that doesn't say that Allegheny County is open for business, you know, and that doesn't provide our children and our grandchildren, you know, opportunities, you know, for them and their families here, you know, going forward. That's right. Now, hey, folks, we're going to have to take a break here. You know, uh, because we always have to pay the bills. Thankfully, that's John's job. He does a great job. I don't get any collection letters, so he's doing a good job. But hey, folks, we'll be right back after the break. This is the Elephant in the Room on WJAS, 1320 AM and 99.1 FM Talk. Folks, welcome back to the Elephant in the Room. I was joined in studio here today in addition to John and Darrell, we have State Representative Rob McCurry from Pennsylvania's 28th Legislative District and candidate for Congress in Pennsylvania's 17th Congressional District is in studio with us today. We had a great first segment. And, uh, you know, Rob, we talked a little bit about things. We talked about your role, what's happening at the state. We also talked about what's happening, in, a little bit about what's happening in your campaign. We want to learn more about that now. But, hey, if someone wanted to help you or wanted to contact you in regards to Business at the state. How would they go about doing that? Yes, in business at the state. Uh, so we've got an official office. We've got two of them actually. One mm-hmm. in Wexford uh, on Brook Tree Road, and uh, and one in West Deer on Nine Ten and Middle Road. And so they can stop by uh, anytime and, and see us. Um, and I've got uh, a website, uh, reprobmercury.com, uh, for any constituent questions. On the campaign side, uh, they can just go to robmercury.com. And okay. check out what we're doing uh, for the congressional campaign. And we are getting more active as the year progresses. It's petition season now. And so, you know, volunteers are welcome uh, to help us uh, get out the word and, and circulate petitions uh, and get on the ballot uh, for November. Now, folks, I know many of you out there, you're well versed in politics and you understand the whole petition thing. <clears throat> but for those who don't, let me, let me share that when you want to run for office, it's not as simple as just coming out and say, hey, I want to run for office, okay? At the, the very least, you have to go out and in a three-week period that always seems to be amongst the worst weather, you know, here in the winter, you have to collect signatures and what they call nominating petitions to you're basically petitioning to get your name on the ballot. And what happens is there's a minimum requirement of the number of signatures that are required, and that's supposed to indicate if you're able to get those signatures that you have support in the community, you know, for your candidacy. And 
you know, the requirements, for example, if you're running for state rep for that district, is like 300 signatures at a minimum. And you always look to double and maybe triple that. <clears throat> for Congress, Rob, it's 1,000 signatures, correct? That's right. That's right. It's a test of fortitude to get those. you got to organize. <laughs> you got to go through the, the weather. Uh, but it's also an opportunity to meet um, and greet your neighbors, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so you always do it on the party that you're uh, going to be uh, endorsed by uh, or on the ballot as. And so we go to our Republican friends and neighbors and ask them to, to sign so that we can be on the ballot. And it's good to hear from them about the issues they care about and how their lives are going. And, and, and it's, uh, so it's fun in that way too. But it is a, an arduous uh, process. Yeah, and, and I mean, folks, I can tell you firsthand, as I've done it for a number of years, I'm in my third term on county council, it is agonizing because what you do is you try to get your petitions in as many people's hands as possible and ask them to assist you in collecting signatures. Then you try to keep track, you know, by contacting these folks every few days or, you know, weekly because you only have a three-week period to get all this stuff done and find out where there are. And I can tell you, you know, I've been fortunate. I've always had, you know, minimum of du- double or triple the number of signatures. But I can tell you, going into that last week, I've never known that, you know, because, you know, folks are out there, they're collecting signatures. You don't know. You're trying to check and you're always worried about, am I going to get the minimum? Am I going to get the minimum? And, I mean, when you're a good a good candidate like you are, Rob, you know they're, it's coming through, right? <laughs> Thanks, Sam. But it could be a yeah, little agonizing, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. You want to get that number and then move on to the campaign. Right. And so that's what we're that's what we're doing right now. Well, you had, you, you had a great comment there when you talked to her, <clears throat> that this is an opportunity as you're going door to door or you're meeting with your constituents to understand what motivates and, and, and what they believe are the, the, the top issues. And based upon some of the conversations you're having yeah. so far, what are your constituents telling you are their number one issues? In yeah. regards to Washington. Yeah, the first thing is pocketbook, right? First thing is pocketbook. We've had record inflation now for far too long. And uh, it's clear that under the Biden administration policies uh, of overspending to the tune of trillions of dollars, as you mentioned earlier, Sam, and all while we have a $34 trillion national debt mm-hmm. that, you know, the economics of that spending means that prices are going to go up. And they are in in drastic ways. And so we're hearing a lot from people about, hey, can you help us with the family budget? You know, gas is too expensive. Groceries are just ridiculous. Everything's gone up. And uh, my answer to that is we absolutely need to get back to fiscal responsibility um, in the national economy. And and we can do that. It it will take um, difficult decisions uh, by this Congress and the next Congress. Uh, But little by little, we need to right the ship. And it won't turn in a day. Uh, but we can uh, make progress on uh, paying down our national debt, reducing the size of the annual deficit, and living within our means. And we'll be a, a stronger country and a more powerful economy if we can do that. So that's really been number one. Second to that, I think, is people are, are nervous and scared as they look around the world, and they see a lot of instability. And it's at our borders. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got wide open southern borders that need closed as quickly as possible. Um, and Sam, even you know, Democrats, uh, progressives, even are seeing the problem and realizing that this is a massive issue that that needs taken care of. We've been talking about this for years. Uh, we need to finish the border wall. We need to have good security down there and organized legal immigration process. We've got the equivalent of the city of Pittsburgh every month coming into the United States. Three hundred thousand people every month uh, illegally coming into the United States. 
And that just can't be sustainable. It's not sustainable. No. And a lot of folks that are coming over in that illegal way are having a terrible uh, time as they come up from a humanitarian standpoint. The coyotes that are bringing them up are exploiting them in many ways. And uh, they're being asked to run drugs up uh, into our economy here in the Pittsburgh area, by the oh, way, right. up the 79 corridor, if you talk to local law enforcement. And so there's lots of problems that that illegal um, immigration and open border are causing. So we need to solve that. So I do hear about that. And then the global instability that the weakness of the Biden administration has caused, uh, where we've got uh, many, uh, too many uh, conflagrations across the world, whether it's Ukraine, Israel, or otherwise, other hotspots. And uh, and so they're concerned about that. Well, I mean, to take a step back for just talk about the border for a second. I mean, folks, you do realize, or hopefully you realize, that we lose at least 100,000 Americans a year due to opioid and fentanyl overdoses, okay? And that includes thousands here. I think it's around 4,000 a year yeah, here in Pennsylvania, many. okay? And right now, when we're talking about the border, you know, right now there's a, a situation playing out you know, where Texas got tired of the millions of people that were coming across their border and just flooding, basically invading Texas and flooding, you know, their uh, resources that they can't take care of them. Governor Abbott has done a phenomenal job in bringing attention to the issue by taking and shipping some of these migrants, you know, on buses to these cities like Chicago and New York, you know, Philadelphia, who have claimed that their sanctuary cities and all are welcome to the point that these folks are now you know, protesting and suing and trying to stop that. <clears throat> so Governor Abbott tried to defend Texas and asked the Texas uh, state police and, and, and officials to take and close a park to the Border Patrol because they weren't stopping the migrants from crossing. You know, they want to tear down <clears throat> the barriers that the Texas has put up. So uh, the Biden administration took this to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court in a 5-4 to four decision mm role that the federal government, you know, has the right to remove those barriers. But Governor Abbott, to his credit, is standing tall and saying, wait a minute, he's invoking the constitutional rights under, you know, a, a section that says if he's being invaded. And it's like Democrats in the Biden administration are demanding that Texas commit suicide, you know, by allowing this, you know, unfettered invasion from migrants that we don't know who these people are. You know, and I listen, I don't know how campaigns are going to play out here in this election year. But I've, you know, I think Republicans need to be taking and, and parading, you know, these families that are victims of these criminals, some of these folks that come, are coming across that are criminals, these illegal aliens that are committing horrific crimes and things like that, you know, in front of the public so people can understand what's at stake. Mm -hmm. It's just uh, something needs to happen, needs to be done. I took a trip to the border, Sam, as part of a congressional candidate's delegation a few weeks ago mm -hmm. uh, down to Yuma, Arizona. And we saw where the existing border wall stopped. So during the Trump administration, there were 500 plus miles of secure border fence built. And it wasn't just a wall. It was a, a fence that also had security measures uh, around Sensors it. Sensors and things like Sensors, that. Sensors, right? you know, border patrol agents, mm -hmm. all that sort of stuff. And, you know, on day one of the Biden administration... One of his first executive orders was to stop the building of, of that border fence. And when he did that, it literally, by force of law, stopped uh, any construction to, to fill the remaining gap that exists. And so there are, there are uh, materials, millions of dollars of materials of border fence paid for by U.S. taxpayer dollars sitting beside that open border area. 
And uh, migrants are pouring over that border on a daily basis um, at, at the explicit behest of the Biden administration. It wouldn't exist this way if he would have let that border wall continue to, to, to uh, be completed. So we need to resume you know, the securing of the border. And people should know that you know, the victims of this illegal immigration are immediately, as you mentioned, in Texas and on the borders with Arizona. And it's, it's farmers, it's, it's people who are uh, trying to go about their days. It's the food banks that are being ravaged. It's the hospitals uh, that are being over, overrun as well. Um, and it's just not a sustainable situation. And it's not humanitarian either for the migrants themselves. They need to be uh, taken care of by their host governments. And we need to, just like we always do, help with humanitarian assistance in the proper way. But illegally coming across our border and being subjected to these bad conditions uh, is just just not the way to do it. Folks, when, when progressive Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman recognizes this as a crisis and calls it just that. But yet the Biden administration won't admit it, you know, and won't do anything to stop the flow. I mean, you know, there's a problem. And I, I think it's, it's, we're talking here last weekend in January, <clears throat> Democrats are scrambling in Washington now because it's an election year and they know this is an issue and they want to be able to go back and tell the voters before they face them that they've done something about it right. while yeah. ignoring it for the last three years. And there's a deal on the table right now in Congress for the, a, a, for, uh, the administration to sign off on Ukrainian support with transparency and accountability that is necessary, by the way. We can't mm -hmm. just write them a blank check yep. like we've been, and, and we need to support our ally, uh, but there has to be good transparency, accountability, and a, an end goal in mind. Um, but there's also an opportunity to do a deal on the border. And so I think any any uh, congressman uh, who thinks that um, holding up that deal because they don't want to secure the border will do so at their own peril electorally. And I think voters will have a chance to decide this November if the border is a priority and our national security is as well. Now, folks, there there are some there are some problems with this. Okay, and that's the fact that uh, you know you have Republicans. I heard Mitch McConnell is trying to force Republican senators to agree to support the deal before they release the details, okay? Uh, folks, that's not acceptable, and this is a reason why we have such a mess, and this is a reason why so, so many Republicans or others are reluctant to join the party or support us because, you know, this is what happens when they refer to it as the uniparty. And I had seen some things that were leaked of some, this supposed deal that Senator Langford was talking about, and they were going to allow 5000 a day to come across. Well, they're 365 days in the year, okay? I mean, again, they, they've just allowed between 8 and 10 million people because we don't know how many gotaways, meaning folks that the Border Patrol saw but was never able to stop or interdict or surrender to them. And we have record numbers of folks that are on the terror watch list that have been apprehended at the southern border. How many aren't we apprehending, Right. So, I mean, there was there was just something last week, Rob, uh, a reporter asked one of the folks coming across about, you know, who are they or whatever, and the guy replied something like, you'll know who I am, and everyone will soon enough. Jeez. That's a frightening, yep. frightening statement. We've got to take the measures to secure the country, Sam. It's it's not just the border, too. It's, it's, um, it's cybersecurity measures. You mm -hmm. know, a few uh, months ago, we had a cyber attack that hit Aliquippa Water Authority. Uh, from Iran. 
And uh, today there was a, a um, report uh, from J.P. Morgan that they have 45 billion attacks, cyber attacks, every year on yeah. their uh, well, infrastructure it, yeah. and, and the bank. And that's just J.P. Morgan. So think about you know every other company, Pittsburgh-based companies, uh, these other uh, inf- pieces of our infrastructure, whether it's water authority or uh, nuclear reactors or other uh, sensitive facilities, and they're being probed for weaknesses by hackers, state actors, in places like Iran, North Korea, certainly Russia, China, uh, China and and all of those who would do us harm across the world. And they're getting better at it every day, and we have to keep pace with those um, with those hackers and shore up our defenses. I wrote a letter to Governor Shapiro uh, a couple weeks ago that went uh, unresponded to, asking him to take immediate action, form a task force to evaluate what happened uh, in Aliquippa with that cyber attack and determine if action is necessary uh, for other uh, utilities across the state. I'm not sure why uh, there's no action being taken, but um, I think that uh, we need to be very concerned about the weaknesses uh, potentially in our utilities and other uh, key infrastructure uh, spots across the state. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you the concern people have no idea how vulnerable we really are you know and we're so reliant on modern technology i mean if our if our electricity if our electric grid was interrupted here and people were without power for a week i mean think of how many things how you know society could basically you know fail you have so many people that don't have don't have a week's worth of food Mm -hmm. in their pantries they don't have a week's worth of fuel in their vehicles how would they heat cool their homes you know I mean, you know, our grid, our infrastructure certainly needs to be protected. And, and what's frustrating to folks like myself is when you see Joe Biden put like $400 billion plus into like BS, new green deal stuff that they stuck into the infrastructure bill. When this is money that could be used to shore up and protect our country's vital infrastructure, it's just right. incredibly frustrating. And a lot of the the Green New Deal money as well goes against reliability and infrastructure support when you come to think about that most of our energy grid comes from coal and natural gas. And over time, we can get to a more sustainable place with newer technology that's also reliable. But we don't have that yet. A lot of EV drivers are seeing that uh, right now with uh, how the cold affects uh, that whole infrastructure. And, you know, weather-dependent systems like solar and wind um, are just not reliable. Nope. And so pushing more a, a higher percentage of our grid to less reliable sources is going to create risk, just like ignoring these cyber attacks. Well, this is what's frustrating, okay? And we talked about <clears throat> briefly earlier in the show about how why we're believers in limited government, okay? The government trying to pick winners and losers. That's right. And it seems, unfortunately, every time they pick, they're picking losers, Okay. So, you know, we've seen it. When you talk about the green energy, you're right. Wind, uh, wind and solar are not reliable sources of energy. And any time, any place you see these plants, you'll, you'll also find like a natural gas plant right next to it to provide stable power for when those aren't operating, right? right, right. But the United States reduced its carbon emissions by more than all the other signatories to the Paris Climate Accords combined, you know, just by our transition from coal to cleaner burning natural gas. So instead of allowing the market to, in technology to take us where we want to go, we are wasting trillions, trillions of taxpayer dollars on that. And then the electric cars, I mean, you know, you just saw Hertz 
took and said, we're going to get rid of 20,000 of our electric vehicles because there's no demand for them, right? But instead of taking money, this money that's been allocated under these bills and using it to upgrade our infrastructure, use it to help our homeless or our veterans or, you know, fix our, our roads or anything else. No, we're wasting it on subsidies, you know, for like electric vehicles, for things that nobody wants. And this is why we're in such a, a, a friggin' mess today. You know, it's just, it's just it is. incredibly frustrating. Yeah, returning to free market principles, I think, is essential. And it's part of our conservative ideology as well. And it's also, you know, why uh, countries like China are, are continuing to struggle. Uh, they've had a lot of growth. They embraced some free market, but they, they retained that central planning aspect mm-hmm. uh, and socialist aspect that a lot on the left in America are embracing unfortunately. And if we continue to embrace uh, that type of progressive ideology, uh, then we will lower the trajectory of United States growth over time and lessen the inherent advantages that we've had structurally from our powerful free market democratic system that's built this country. And, uh, and I'm running you know, to restore a focus on Let's put government in the right place to defend our borders, to defend our country with strong military, and and then let's let the free market do its work, and let's let uh, parents uh, take the lead in their homes and in the communities and continue to uh, grow this country and really revive the country and the American dream that we've started to lose. Rob, the more and more I listen to you, the more and more it's clear that we need your voice in Washington. You know, now you said it earlier in the show, but if folks want to help you, if they want to sign up to volunteer, if they want to donate money, or if they just want to get in contact with the campaign, how do they go about it again? Thank you, Sam. Go to robmercury.com, <coughs> and we would su- we would welcome your support in our campaign uh, for Congress in District 17. Thanks for having me. No, listen, it's a pleasure to have you. Now, hey, we talked about, and I'm and I, sorry, I you know spun off here to talk about the border because it is such an important subject today. Again, the cartels are making, I've heard numbers, like $34 million a week, a week, you know, by just taking and trafficking people. They bring them across this border. You know, back in the Trump administration, they, you know, the Democrats were showing pictures from the Obama administration talking about kids in cages. And now, you know, under the Biden administration, we have at least 85,000 children who the government can't tell us where they are. You know, I mean, we have a real humanitarian crisis on the border, and uh, it, 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 it's hitting every community. And I think you may have said it earlier, but even though folks think of the border as being Arizona, where you went to see in Yuma, you know, or Texas, okay, we're all a border state now because we're all being affected by these things. That's right. Yeah, the fentanyl crisis is really scary. Enough fentanyl has has come through our borders illegally uh, to kill every man, woman, and child in America. Like, it's that powerful. Yes. And even in small doses, um, as, as folks traffic this stuff into our communities, just touching it uh, or coming into contact, if, if somebody you know, thinks they're using a different drug and, and it's mixed in, um, can cause really, really drastic consequences. And, uh, and so that's another reason, Sam, a humanitarian reason for us to close that border uh, and reduce the flow of illegal substances like fentanyl that are killing uh, so many uh, across our country and right here in Pennsylvania. And you're right, we are a border state uh, because we are receiving those, those negative benefits or consequences of illegal trafficking of drugs 
uh, and even people too. The human trafficking is a dark corner of what's happening across the border as well, that uh, if we close that border, we will have less of, of that terrible human tragedy as well. Right. And, and we, we certainly need all the help we can get. Now, you also talked about the economy and kitchen table issues, you know, and, and what bothers me is just how, you know, folks will look at politicians or look at anybody and it's always a, what have you done for me lately world, okay? Many folks will look at things as they are today and lose sight over how they've been the last four years, okay, last three years. And, and I would urge people to understand that, you know, right now, prices are set on average are 17% higher than they were when Joe Biden took office. The cost of a new car is up 30%. The cost of a used car is up 38%, okay? I mean, uh, interest rates are as high as they've been this century, in the last 25 years, you know? For folks trying to get started or trying to borrow money or buy a home or buy vehicles, I mean, it's incredibly difficult. So the American public is being hurt everywhere you look. How do we change that? Well, the concept of fiscal responsibility, you know, sounds like a boring concept. Nobody wants to be fiscally responsible. But in reality, having a budget that you live by, whether it's in your home life or in your, you know, county government or state government. And in Pennsylvania, we actually have a balanced budget requirement in our constitution that we cannot take on more uh, annual debt than we bring in in revenue. That mm -hmm. if we want to, you know, find something else to spend government resources on, we've got to find the revenue to match it. We don't have that at the United States level. So the United States can print and spend as much as Congress authorizes. I would love to see that changed. I think a balanced budget amendment would be a good idea. And certainly taking measures even before we get that balanced budget amendment uh, to pare down spending so that we don't have drastic deficits every single year and continue to build that mounting national debt that's going to be our kids and grandkids' responsibility. So the effect that you were talking about, Sam, where you know we see the price of goods going up and it's harder to get by and the paycheck doesn't stretch as far and our Social Security check doesn't stretch as far, that's the effect of the irresponsible budgeting of the national government. That's the effect of the overspending and inflationary economy. Uh, and the only way you can get that under control is by uh, doing the harder right thing uh, and being fiscally responsible. You know, I, I come to think, when I, when I joined county council when I was elected back in 2015, I attended something called Local Government Academy, newly elected officials class. I believe they should have to have something like that for members of Congress. They should. You know, where they teach you basic economics so that you can understand. Right. Where the folks will understand the ramifications of the decisions you're asked to vote on. But hey, folks, listen, as always, you know, when we're sitting here, we're talking, we get caught up and we have a great guest like we have with State Representative McCurry today. Time runs short. So, Robin, we have about 30 seconds here. What would you like to leave our listeners with? I would just say thank you again for having me. Thanks for listening, you know, to your listeners who are interested in helping us. Um, you know, the way that we take this country back is standing up and being counted. The way you do that, register to vote. Make sure you vote, whether by mail or in person, on April 23rd and on November 5th. And, uh, and if you want to help us, we need or to run an organized campaign with lots of volunteers. Come out and help us. Sign up on robmercury.com. Well, Rob, we appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. And hey, folks, for the 9,999th time, I'm telling you, while we expect turnout to be high this year, you can't count on anyone but yourself. I need all of you to go out to vote, and it starts by requesting a mail-in or absentee ballot 
and taking and filling that out so that you can have your voice heard and make sure that your voice counts. Until next week, this is your host, Sam DeMarco, signing off for The Elephant in the Room on WJAS 1320 AM and 99.1 FM Talk.